Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, the editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the CIO of Facebook, which stands for Chief Irritating Officer, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play two live interviews I just conducted in Toronto, Canada. I spoke with Facebook's former Chief Security Officer, Alex Stamos, who left the company last year and was deeply involved in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. I also spoke with Twitter co-founder, Ev Williams, who's now the CEO of the blogging platform Medium and a partner at Obvious Ventures. These interviews were recorded live on stage at the Collision Conference in Toronto. So let's go there now to hear both of them, starting with Facebook's former chief security officer, Alex Stamos. Hi, everybody. I'm back. Um, so Alex and I know each other really well, so, uh, so, and we like to argue with each other about a lot of things. And we were most recently up in Napa Valley at this stunning resort, and all we did, we were in a wine cellar, and we started screaming at each other, essentially. So we're hoping to replicate that here a little bit. Um, so it, let's talk about some of There's a lot less wine. Right. I don't think that's... Let, let, let's, I'm going to give you... I'm going to go off from our discussion. One of Alex's contentions, even though he did... He, talked a lot, and he's been one of the more forthright people in tech about what happened at Facebook and other places, is that it's misunderstood. So one of your arguments is that Facebook is misunderstood. Is that correct? What I think is, I think there's a lot of directionally correct criticism where the details are wrong. And, All right, and so that's... directionally correct, they ruined democracy, and... <laughs> right, so... No, well, so, no, I don't think Facebook has ruined democracy. So I think there's a couple of things going on here. One, there's a whole class of tech criticism that is actually criticism of other people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the, the saying start says, hell is other people. Right. Facebook is other people, right? right? Okay. And when you talk about anti-vaxxers and crazy parents today right. recommending bleach, this is the collective decisions of millions or billions of people when you give them a freedom they never had before. Now, that doesn't mean the company doesn't have responsibility, but you... I think one of the problems is we're not teasing apart what the companies are doing actively and what kind of societal issues have been unleashed by the fact that we have gotten rid of the information gatekeepers. And I think that's one of the core disagreements between the Valley overall and the media is sometimes for those of us in tech, it feels a little bit like there's a lot of media people who want to go back to the world where 38 middle-aged white guys decide what is the no, political... No, come on. That's, no, but that's bullshit. That's not true. That's not the case. Okay, what, well, you're, I mean, you, what you're essentially arguing is Facebook doesn't kill people, people kill people, right? Or not. Or, well, or it's, the, it's humanity, essentially. I, 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 what I'm saying is that people will utilize speech sometimes to do really good things and a lot of times to do bad things. Right. And we've got to think about what responsibility we want the companies to have because when we give them responsibility, we also give them power. Right. And that's the other thing that I think I disagree, actually, with some of my friends at Facebook because I think in a lot of ways Facebook is too powerful. Right. And I'm very afraid of this moment when we are 
assigning responsibility to half trillion to trillion dollar companies with no democratic accountability and no limits to that power, and then asking them to fix societal wide issues. Let's get first to the beginning of this. I want to talk about some of your fixes. I think some of them are, we do agree on some of them. So the misunderstood part is directionally it was correct. So what direction was it correct and what has been incorrect? Okay, so uh, a great example of something that I'm still really active on. So a little pitch, uh, the, the, my colleagues and I at Stanford are releasing a report on June 6th about what to do after the Mueller report on election security. And one of our big recommendations is both for regulation from Congress and self-regulation from the tech companies to really expand the definition of political advertising and to reduce the ability to use targeted ads against individuals. So the direction of allowing people to use hyper-targeting to manipulate societies, absolutely a correct criticism. issue Criticism issue with tech. Something so needs to be fixed. Direct targeting of people. This ability right. to target people in unprecedented ways and presumably manipulate them. Right, right. Whether or not it's Russians or not, it's just a bad thing. It is a bad thing that we are now... The truth is, is that this has been a problem for a while. Mm-hmm. The 2012 election, where Obama's team totally kicked the butt uh, of the Republicans online, that is probably the first U.S. election that was quote-unquote thrown by Facebook. That was at least significantly affected by online advertising. But most people in the media were okay with the outcome, so they didn't get pissed about it. Or didn't know it. Or they didn't know about it. I don't know. It was pretty well covered. I saw the, the Obama tech team give a big interview at an Amazon Web Services wow. conference where they talked about how much data they're pulling from Facebook and how finely they're targeting the ads. Right. And so they did nothing... Everything that is complained about in Cambridge Analytica right, there's a, there's really a, happened in 2012. There's a difference between the Obama team and a group of Russians in St. Petersburg manipulating an election. I think right. we well, could... Well, yes and no. I mean, I would say yes the and most... No? There, there's a difference there, but the problem is, is that the actual most effective use of Facebook to manipulate people in 2016 was almost certainly the core Trump campaign in a variety of RNC-related groups. It wasn't the Russians themselves. The, the biggest thing the Russians did was the hack and leak campaign, mm-hmm. um, for which the actual conduit of that was the mass media. The fact mm-hmm. that the media covered the Podesta leaks and the DNC leaks and changed the way it covered Hillary around mm-hmm. her emails based upon the, the Russian hacking. If you look at just from a size perspective, both from an organic and an advertised content, the internet research agency output pales in comparison to the amount of money spent um, and the quality of the targeting by the Trump campaign itself and by a variety of Republican groups. All right, so targeted advertising is directionally a problem. What yes. about the involvement of the Russians? Because I've just been spending a lot of time in Washington and most intelligence people feel like it's increased exponentially. Oh, yeah. Not just at Facebook, but on our electric grids, telephone systems, all kinds right. of Right, I mean, the, we are entering a very, very scary period, right? The, mm-hmm for a couple of reasons. One, the Russian playbook for 2016 is out there. It is not that technically difficult to hack the email of a couple of grandfathers and release the contents, mm-hmm. nor is it that difficult to, to build a team of people that basically are you know, edgelords pushing memes all day and then doing a little bit of, of targeted advertising. Right. Um, so what I expect is that the Russian playbook is going to be executed inside the United States by domestic groups, in which case... Some of it, other than the hacking, is not illegal. All the Russian internet agency stuff, if done by a group hired by an American billionaire and they're careful around existing uh, law. uh, No, an American. Like if you had an American, you know, the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson or George Soros or, you know, pick your billionaire. You know, Reid Hoffman got kind of caught paying for a company to do some of this stuff on the Democratic side. My real fear is in 2020... It is going to be the battle of the billionaires of secret groups working for people aligned on both sides who are trying to manipulate us at scale online. And one of the hard parts is there's a difficult, it's very difficult to draw the line about what's acceptable political speech 
especially in the United States where Citizens United gives these guys almost no legal barriers at all. Right. Um, and, and, and then how do we tell the companies we want them to stop it? Because it's, it's easy to say we want to stop Russians, right? Like that's an easy rule to write. It's a lot harder to say we want to stop some kind of super PAC that is secretly manipulating people at scale, especially if what they're doing might violate some of Facebook's terms of service, but don't violate federal law. Because of Citizens United. Because so they're what, citizens, yeah. So what would, what would be the solution? So you have the billionaires, the attack of the billionaires on the, on the election. You have influenced by the Russians, who will continue to do it because it works, yeah. presumably. Other countries, China, Iran, others. Right. I think we'll see less China in the West. Um, the Taiwanese election in January of 2020, the PRC is going to be all over that. Right, and in India, which is happening now. India, so India's election's over. Uh, the counting is, is happening right now. India is a fascinating issue because most of the disinformation is driven by domestic actors. Right. Uh, and they don't, and they're doing it on WhatsApp. It's actually the interesting, WhatsApp is the exception that proves that some of the kind of dumb criticism about Facebook and algorithms is poorly built because WhatsApp has no algorithmic ranking. It has a huge amount of privacy for people. And yet there's a disinformation problem because the problem is people. And in right. this case, in India, you have the ability to enlist hundreds of thousands of people to push propaganda on behalf of your political party. All right, so the problem is people, which you said again, but they've been armed with tools that are unprecedented and possibly not controlled. So would you, would you argue with me and say that, I have said this, I think you know this, that I felt like these companies have weaponized everything and amplified it at the same time. It's sort of like going from a, a, a gun that shoots six bullets to a machine, you know, a semi-automatic machine gun. How do you look at it? That's how I look at it. Uh, you know, well, I like your use of the term amplification right. because I think one of the things we start to forget is that these companies are actually many products at once. If you take just the Facebook product, the big blue app, mm -hmm. you can decompose it into 10 or 12 different applications that have different levels of amplification. And at the top of I use on a chart an inverted pyramid for this. The top of that inverted pyramid is advertising and recommendation engines. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where you start because that's where the most risk is. And there's also, I think, the, less, the least amount of free expression concern when you block somebody's access to advertising. And so if we're going to start from a regulatory, both self-regulatory and, industrial, and uh, you know, federal regulatory perspective, you start at the top there of regulating political ads. We have a bunch of detailed recommendations in this report that's coming out, but we're going to talk about how we would expand the Honest Ads Act, the kind of transparency requirements. There's been a bunch of transparency changes, but they're totally voluntary, so these companies can just drop them at so, any moment. Uh, so a bill, I mean, this is Amy Klobuchar's bill, yeah. to, to um, both here and elsewhere in the globe, not just in the United States. Yes, and well, and actually, I mean, the real game in town seems to be other countries. It seems to be post- after the Christchurch shooting, the most interesting regulatory moves have all been in the non-U.S. Anglophone countries, right? right? Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Here in Canada, there's lots of discussion about regulation. Um, and because of the lack of a First Amendment, parliamentary systems where you have kind of an implied constitution but no constitutional right to free speech, these countries can move much more quickly than the United States can. Uh, and so my, my proposal would be, I think the U.S. should lead on this. And so we should have a U.S. The U.S. should lead on regulating ads. We should have a U.S. federal privacy law. Our reluctance to play in this space has opened the door for other countries to regulate in a way that is, in some cases, not helpful. And in this case, maybe we could set a standard that becomes the international standard. Well, would it? Would it? Because they don't have the same... I think so. I mean, I think what would happen if the U.S. came up with a broader definition of political ads and then came up with requirements around who you have to be to run them, 
uh, what kind of transparency is provided uh, and how much micro-targeting can happen, I do think that would encourage a number of other countries to adopt the same standards, if only because it is much more likely they will be enforced. But the U.S. just decided not to join the online extremism yes. proposal from Jacinda Ardern. And, yes, that's uh, a problem. And so I think that's, that's a, a different issue than online ads. I think on the you know, content moderation extremism, the United States is out of the game. Partially because of the First Amendment, partially because of the Trump administration is never going to do anything that undercuts their, you know, it's pretty clear that one of their 2020 strategies is to build a huge amount of kind of cultural dislocation among their supporters based upon saying that uh, internet companies are suppressing them, right? Like right. conservatives control Fox News. They have a huge online ecosystem. So the Russian Fox strategy, I like to call it. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's the Russian strategy, but they... Yeah. I mean, well, creating discord, dislocation, feelings. Yeah, of- and, and creating the idea that you're a suppressed minority, right? Right. Um, even if you control two branches of government and a huge media ecosystem. Uh, and so there's no way they're going to sign up for Christchurch or anything else that could possibly un- undercut the argument that Trump supporters are the suppressed mm-hmm. uh, group, that there's any kind of moderation that means anything. We're here with Facebook's former chief security officer, Alex Stamos. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This week on The Pitch, we're back to pitches. And this one's coming from my job. What Podcast AI does is it lets podcast producers become 10 times more productive. How much are you charging The Pitch? We're charging $99, and Josh came in right before we doubled our prices. Mm-hmm. What's keeping something like a restream from just going like, yep, we do all this AI now stuff too? So there's a lot of these older companies that are tacking on AI, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the issue. They're tacking it on. You built this really quickly. What's to stop anybody else from doing this? What's, what's the moat? How do you build a moat when you're building with AI? That's this week on The Pitch. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so privacy bills. Yeah. Something with fines. What about fines? Uh, on privacy bills? No, yeah. I no, mean, no, no, not fines. So with fines by government agencies all around the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the interesting problems we have in the U.S. is we don't have a competent privacy regulator that translates rules into, so one, we don't really have privacy laws, right? So the the FTC kind of comes up with 
they move the goalposts right. and they say you have to follow these goalposts and then there's not a lot of interpretation of what that actually means technically and this is a problem you see a lot in Europe because European GDPR is being interpreted by 28 different data protection authorities so you have 28 goalposts you're trying to shoot through I think in the US we can do a better job on if we had an organization that could fine without going to court right and that's what some of these other countries do have like the, the Irish is they have organizations that can that can do things before they go nuclear. Right now, the FTC's options are they threaten to go nuclear, and then that allows them to have a negotiation. And if that doesn't work out, they have to go to court, and it's a five-year fight. And I and think then, we do need and something. And then antitrust. Antitrust. So I think there are legitimate antitrust arguments for breaking up Facebook and breaking YouTube up from Google. Those arguments, the legitimate arguments, are the ones on competition policy, right? If you want to argue that these companies have reduced competition through their incredible ability to predict the future, to use their cash reserves to buy companies and to take out competition, I think that's a legitimate argument. Breaking up the companies does not solve the fundamental issues. You can't solve climate change by breaking up ExxonMobil and making 10 ExxonMobils, right? You have to address the underlying issues. And so I think there's a lot of excitement for antitrust because it kind of feels good to be like, oh, I, I hate this company, so let's break it up. Having three companies that have the same fundamental problems doesn't make anything better. So what is the, what is the solution? You've had a couple that are think, interesting. Right. So, um, I mean, so I, if Mark Zuckerberg called me, which he doesn't, uh, right. and asked my advice on this, I, I would say a couple things. I think Facebook needs to have an internal revolution on the culture of how products are built. And there's actually a model for this, which was Microsoft 2002, in which Microsoft was facing kind of the same level of pushback on core information security issues, and they completely changed how the product works. So he directionally has some ideas on that, but I think it's hard without making significant leadership changes to do that. And so if I was Mark, my suggestion would be especially because there's all this, the antitrust stuff is a lot of very personalized on him. He should hire well, himself. Well, it's personalized on him because he controls the company. Completely. Because he controls the company. Right, because right. there is a legitimate argument that he has too much power. He needs to give up some of that power. And if I was him, I would go hire a new CEO for the company. He's already acting as the chief product officer with Chris Cox gone. That's where his passion is. He should hire a CEO that can help signal both internally and externally that the, the culture has to change. And I mean, my recommendation, uh, I'm not a recruiter, but if I can get 20% of this guy's salary in the first year, that would be fantastic. Uh, my recommendation would be Brad Smith from Microsoft, but yeah. some adult who has gone through this before at another company. And then the second, I think, big thing I would do... So change the management structure. Change, change the management structure, yeah. To have not the technologist who owns product be at the top, I think it is important should, to have a manager... Should you go a step further and not allow these tech companies to have this kind of stock where they, ha they have complete kingship over it? So this is where I disagree, because I worked for a tech company that had an activist investor that cared mostly about what Wall Street thinks. Well, Yahoo, yes. At Yahoo. But that and, came at the end. Right. Well, yeah. So Yahoo was dying for 10 years. I mean, there was, right. there was a lot of problems at Yahoo. But I, I actually think the companies are too beholden to Wall Street. Um, and so the second big thing I would change is they need to get rid of stock compensation at big public companies. Okay. So, like... 80-something percent of my compensation at Facebook was set by Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And so this is a crazy world. If the CEO comes to you and says, you've done a really poor job of making our products good for the world, I am very upset with you, congratulations, you got a raise because our stock went up, mm -hmm. right? It, 
allowing, using RSUs as the main form of compensation for executives takes away any kind of discretion from, from the CEO to motivate people with money. And I think that's a fundamental issue in Silicon Valley. It's, for startups, stock makes sense because people are taking a risk. If you work for a huge profitable company, they already have to fully expense it. Uh, both, there's no tax benefit. You're paying full marginal tax rates uh, on, on stock compensation. You should be bonusing people. You can pay them as much, but the bonuses should be based upon a basket of metrics that measure whether you're doing good long-term things for the world, not based upon whether Wall Street liked your recent numbers. Because Wall Street doesn't give a crap it would of give whether you tech's incentives good. incentives to do the worst thing, yeah. presumably. Right, and because what kind of mixed message is it to say we're pivoting the company to care about long-term issues, yet most of your compensation is based upon what happens right after the quarterly numbers are released. I mean, Facebook stock is way back up. It is. And it's not because any fundamental things were fixed, it's because they're making more money than ever. And so, like, how do you manage a team when, when you can't control what you're paying people? Do you think, we just have a few more minutes, uh, do you think they actually are committed to fixing things at Facebook? Or is it just a lot of talk? I mean, I, I do think Mark is serious that he really cares about what people remember him for and what this company does. I think the, one of the fundamental issues is that the metrics the company has been measuring to manage tens of thousands of people that make decisions have been the wrong ones. And that is a hard thing to change. And that's why I'm saying like changing out leadership on the product side might be necessary to help also signal that like the things we used to measure around engagement, around time use, time spent, all that kind of stuff, that's not what we care about anymore. All right, last question. If you were running Facebook, do they call you? Do they talk to you? Um, I talk to lower down people who are actually working on these problems. Yeah. Okay, but they don't like. At the not, top? I, yeah, we're not by you. close. No. They're not close. If you were running Facebook right now in the product area, give me, we've got only two seconds to do this, give me three or four things you think have to be done to make the product healthier for humanity. So I agree with some of the directional stuff of moving the company towards smaller groups, moving it towards ephemerality, moving it towards encryption. Encryption, end-to-end -end encryption, gives you ability to mathematically guarantee people's privacy that allows you to put data out of your reach and out of the reach of your advertising team and anybody who wants to use it. The thing that has to happen with that is they have to do some fundamental rethinking of how they do safety in this situation, which the problem is there's a, a future in which Facebook encrypts everything, everything moves to small groups. A lot of these problems go away from the press because the press doesn't see it anymore, but they actually exist and the societal impact is still bad. And I think that is, that is a very seductive future for the company and the company has to resist that and well, they have to work right on, now. well, I think, I believe in encryption and privacy, but we have to balance the privacy responsibility with the safety responsibility. And there is lots of good technical work we can do to do better on both of those. I would like to see them spend the next year doing that. Anything else? Uh, no, great to be here. Thanks for- No more I'm sorry tours, right? You wouldn't stop no more. saying- Oh, well, I mean, the other big thing is I think they just need to be honest about what they can and can't do. One of the, the big problems of the company is they, they make these content decisions based upon external pressure and trying to react to immediate issues. And right. they don't base it upon kind of a constitution of why yeah. does Facebook do certain things? And the truth is, is there should be limits to the company's power. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be better for the company to say there are certain things we are not going to do, even if we get yelled at a lot by the New York Times. And explain or to Ted the media. Cruz or, or Ted Cruz or... Or Ted Cruz, right, exactly. Or Donald because, Trump. Because what's happened is they've vacillated back and forth. And so it's... Um, 
to use a recent metaphor, there's a little bit of a James Harden action going on here of working the refs, right? Mm -hmm. Of they have indicated as the refs that they can be worked, that they will give you the call if you flop. And so everybody's flopping now. And that's, that's not good for democracy, for these decisions to be made in a secret conference room based upon external pressure. It needs to be made with a public discussion based upon really core fundamental values of what they want to do. And I don't understand what those are. I mean, I, I work there. I don't understand what is the goal of Facebook's content moderation. Is it to keep people safe? Is it to help make this, the product better for society? Is it to help the community? They haven't explained like what is the fundamental goal and they haven't said this is the limit that we will not go past. And that is a critical thing they need. I'm going to give you a pro tip. Maybe they haven't thought about it. Yeah, it's so, possible. Anyway, thank you, Alex Stamos. Thanks, sir. Thanks again to Alex Stamos for joining me on stage. We're going to take another break now, but we'll be back after this with Medium CEO Ev Williams. Hey, it's Tom Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It will be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com Slash notepad. We're here with Ev, who I've known for forever. Um, seems like it. Seems like it. Uh, and we, I want to talk about a lot of things. But let's start, first of all, it's called Life After Twitter, which you've had quite a life after Twitter. You left the board this year. Yeah, a couple of months ago. Can you recently. talk about a little bit why you did that? Um, yeah, it's not very dramatic. I've been on the board since there was a board, so approximately... 12, 13 years, and um, and only on the board for the last 10 or so. So it's, or however, nine. Mm -hmm. um, so I stayed on the board as long as I thought um, I could be helpful, mostly. And um, the company is a really good place now um, compared to some of the time it's, it's been before. And I just felt like I want to spend my time on energy on other things. So. Was it overwhelming for you, like the issues you all face there around hate, around President Trump, around mostly President Trump, really? <laughs> well, being on the board is not being at the company. Right. And so while it's called Life After Twitter, I kind of laugh because it's kind of been Life After Twitter for me for a long time. Yes. And I'll always be associated with the company, always be rooting for it. I'm still a shareholder of the company. So there's certain part of my, my year is no longer spent in Twitter board meetings, but mm -hmm. um, I've been focusing my time on other things for a long time. All right, I want to get to the things you're doing, but what do you, where, where do you think it is right now as, as a medium, the whole social media space? It's obviously been under attack uh, quite heavily. I don't assume you're going to write a Chris Hughes-like document for the New York Times, correct? <laughs> Calling no. Jack no. un-American or anything no. like that? No. No. Sorry, I didn't hear where, the question. Where do you think things. social media is right now? And what where do it I think it is? To fix itself. I mean, it's it's in the you know the bleakness of of figuring out what where it where it needs to go. I think with the um, I don't have any answers as to how we get out of the current situation, but I think we there's a tendency to say, oh, social media is terrible, and right. forget all the great things about it, which. I still believe are true, 
and I believe the terrible things are true because social media is humanity and right. it amplifies, unfortunately it amplifies a lot of bad aspects of humanity. Um, it's very powerful at that um, and very powerful at connecting people with terrible ideas and amplifying those and making them seem like they're good ideas. Um, on the other hand, it does the opposite. And I think there is a better version of social media to be invented and I don't know if that will happen incrementally because there's lots of smart people trying to evolve these systems at, at these massive companies or if it will happen with just completely new paradigms and new ideas that come along. Um, I'm confident it will remain around but I think also people's relationship and, and sort of the novelty and the, some of the excitement that brought, it, brought us to is wearing off. It's like it a sugar high. And now way. we're like, oh, do we need this in our life in right. the same way? Right. And do you, um, do you imagine, let's get to new companies, because you're an investor with Obvious Ventures. You're not really investing in that space. We don't all. really, no. Why is that? It's not that we wouldn't, but at Obvious Ventures, we, we focus on what we call world positive investing, which is things that we think address big systemic problems we face as a society. We haven't seen something come along, and, and we don't do actually very many internet or media things. We do a little bit, but we, we do things more in health and wellness and sustainability. So world positive, that's a, that's a very techie word. What does that mean? Because... Well, it's just I, our term before things like we have a lens. We're a, we're not an impact investor. We're a for-profit investor because that that doesn't compromise on financial returns. Because but we're very genuinely focused on things that we think are are big ideas and big solutions. So why don't you want to call it impact investing? Because that's what it's called. I mean, impact investing can be great, just but impact investing uh, historically is a view that we will take a lesser financial return in order to have some sort of other impact, right. and which there, there's investments that make sense for that. Our our view is that the biggest companies that scale the most are not going to have; they're going to have big returns, mm -hmm. and so rather than say we're going to compromise in returns, we feel like that can be a failure mode and say like actually it's not that healthy of a company or it doesn't have great product market fit. We're we're saying no, it has to be it has to be great. So an example, one of our companies is Beyond Meat, which, which is really well on. which is done phenomenal, and we it's not an impact investment; it's a phenomenally lucrative profitable investment that, that addresses this massive need of lowering our, our carbon footprint when it comes to the what's, meat we What's really interesting is that Beyond Meat is doing great in the stock market and Uber is tanking and Lyft is tanking all I wouldn't have of, predicted that necessarily a few years that. ago. So talk about how you got into this, the, the, the Beyond Meat, because there's also Impossible Foods. There's yep. a lot of food invest, food tech investing, I yeah. guess, if you want. Um, Beyond Meat was one of the first investments we did. We actually rolled it into Obvious Ventures. Biz and I, you know, my longtime partner, Biz, was a vegan for a long time. Some Kleiner Perkins did the Series A and Beyond Meat. I think because they knew he was a vegan, they're like, hey, are you interested in this company? And so, so he brought it to us, and we were very excited about it. We love the products. I've uh, been vegan and pescatarian for a long time. And Wait, which one are you? I, I was vegan, now I'm pescatarian. So okay. I haven't eaten a land animal for a very long time, so, okay. so I enjoyed the products. Biz enjoyed the products. We're, you and just draw the line at fish? I draw the line at fish. All right, okay. Yeah. And Ethan Brown, the CEO and founder of Beyond Me, is just an incredible human, mm -hmm. and so we backed him fairly early on. 
And when, at the time you did it, there wasn't a lot of people interested in that sector. And there, there was investments, but it was more on yeah. the research side, a lot of the research stuff, and this is a yeah. small market. What did you hope, I'll get to the, the stock market thing, why did you go public with it and what did you hope for, that it would be in every supermarket or you're aiming at people who eat meat? Yeah, we, I mean, the goal with it, and the company's been around for a few years, um, and the goal with it was always... Um, to penetrate the meat market. And I mean, not in the actual, the grocery right. store sense. Right. And to, to really, that's this massive trillion dollar market that we thought there's a better alternative to. So we didn't have the plan for that. Ethan and his team had the plan, but it's, it's going well so far. So where do you imagine, like there's, there's a world, I guess it would be world positive. How much pushback have you had from meat companies? I know they don't want you to call it meat because just the way the milk... Yeah. Distributors don't want oat milk to be called yeah. oat milk or cashew milk. or. I think some of them see it as an opportunity and some of them see it as a threat, I would imagine. Tyson is in it, right? Tyson was actually a big investor and shareholder, and, right. and they got out just before the IPO. they're making their own version. Yeah, I would assume any, any meat company. I mean, the, the re response to the Beyond Me IPO, which has been so gratifying, is that people are paying attention to this plant protein company that most people wouldn't have predicted would make such a big blip. And I think it's a lot of people seeing the potential. And in terms of when you think about these world positive things, talk about what your theories are of venture investing, because that's changed a lot. You know, you have the advent of giant, giant investors like SoftBank, yeah. which of course has gotten a bath in, in yeah. the Uber investment. Um, how do you look at investing then as a venture? How do you distinguish yourself? So ours, we, we kind of play a different game, I think, than most Silicon Valley investors. And, and first of all, it's our lens of, of filtering out a lot of things that, that could be great investments, but if we don't think they really are, are going to address some need for society, we'll say, that's okay, we, there's lots of others we'll focus on. So, which eliminates most of enterprise software. Mm -hmm. And then also the message that entrepreneurs really appreciate is that we, we are mission aligned. Mm -hmm. And we will support an entrepreneur who is mission focused, um, which people come to us because they really like hearing that. Because as an entrepreneur, you can be, and I've been in this position where you're, you're aligned with your investors in terms of wanting to build something really big, but you can get misaligned in terms of really the purpose of that thing. So what does that bring you to? What areas are you excited about in that regard? So we, we do a lot of stuff in um, sustainability from solar and solar software. We have, um, we're investors in um, Proterra, the electric bus company. There's some other, another exit we just had was Ollie, which was a, which was a supplement company. And so we tend to do things that are outside of, of the traditional Silicon Valley world that I know, which of course Silicon Valley is expanding greatly in terms of what they invest in, but it's not a lot of software or media. All right. When you, I'm going to get to medium in a second, but when you think about venture, I just interviewed Mark Cuban and Steve Case, um, and they were talking about the efforts they're making to get all around the world to try to get more talent from elsewhere. Right now, 80% of venture capital goes to three states. Which and most of it to California and yeah. most of it to Silicon Valley continues to be all white, all male, um, not very geographically diverse, not mm -hmm. very globally diverse. Why does that continue from your perspective? Mm. I think it's it's habit. Um, it's it's definitely not the the lack of viable investments that are outside the geography or demographics of that traditional set. 
And so we aren't internationally focused. And one thing is that so much of the money is in Silicon Valley and the firms are there because they come out of, you know, it's historic. Right. And it is hard to invest in other places where you're not, there's just a time in the day problem. Mm -hmm. We have a couple investments in Europe, but not a lot. Um, and we have some, some in New York and throughout the country. But, but part of that, um, I, I certainly celebrate expanding the ethos and the, the, the formula of Silicon Valley to other places, but um, it's, it's pretty massive and there's this perpetuating cycle. People come out of companies and they go back in and they invest in their friends. I get that, but why doesn't it happen? You're a very well-meaning person. You have a broad attitude toward diversity, but most people just talk about it and nothing happens in that regard. It seems like you're, one, missing the boat, meaning there's lots of investments you're missing, and two, yeah. perpetuating something like this is not an excuse for doing that. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't see any excuse for doing it. We try very hard to invest. I don't have the data off the top of my head mm -hmm. about our portfolio. Mm -hmm. I know it, it is something that comes up in every partner meeting and every conversation I'm, I'm in about how we both hire in the firm, um, both women and people from underrepresented backgrounds, and, we, and how we get that into our portfolio. And, and we work on it daily, and, and my partners are very focused on that, but Do I don't have an excuse. Do you think Silicon Valley has changed in attitude given the sort of this tech lash that's happening? I think it is dramatically. I mean, in my 20 years of building companies in Silicon Valley, the intensity of focus on diversity and inclusion in the last five years is dramatically higher. It's an order of magnitude higher, and it's changing how, definitely how we invest, how we run companies, how we hire. It's changed all those things, in my experience, and we have a long way to go. Yeah, the numbers still don't bear it out. It's really, I totally it's, agree. It's the strangest thing. Um, so. When you think about uh, where the biggest, most interesting innovations are happening, where do you tend towards right now? You're obviously in food tech. There's a lot of mobility stuff going on, and that's not mobile phones. Where do yeah. you think the hottest place to look at is? And what um, do you think the hype, the worst place right now is? Well, I don't spend that much time looking, looking at investments, to tell you the truth. I spend more of my time on Medium, which maybe we should talk about that. Wait, yes, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to get that right now. But I mean, I think obviously AI is infiltrating everything we do, and there's some very interesting things. We're actually there's an overlap of AI and um, material and molecule discovery, right? Um, which I'll probably butcher this if I if I try to even explain it. One of our companies is Zymergen, which is based on which is just doing mind blowing things and inventing new, discovering new materials and new chemicals through right. AI. And so that's a field that I barely understand. And um, I think every time I learn more about it is doing incredible things. And there's a All number right. of companies like Medium. that. Medium. Yes. What's happening with Medium now? When last we talked, you were, you changed it about 63 times, like in the way you're looking about it. How do you look at it right now? How, what do you think of it as? Um, I, I would argue I have not changed it 63 times, although um, I do defend my, my, I don't mind it. Mind. I don't care if you change it. <laughs> we haven't changed that many things about Medium. Medium's been around for about seven years. Mm -hmm. um, the entire time it's been an open publishing platform that has grown that entire time. Mm -hmm. um, so more people write, more people read. Two years ago, we, we started building a subscription business right. on top of that. That's been going very well. And so over the last two years, the main thing we've done is built this premium 
consumer subscription business um, on top of the open publishing platform. So it's really a mesh of those two things that allows anyone to publish, have a voice, potentially get paid. We pay thousands of writers from all over the world every week, um, and that's a growing amount. And, and then we have a professional editorial team, and then we also work with third-party publishers. So we, we do all that. Would, you, 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 would it be right to say that you've pushed off of the professional stuff more and tended more towards different writers? Has that not worked as well, or what part has worked the best? Everything's growing. The, the bulk of Medium is still self-published authors. Right. And um, that's what, and we have our, our partner program where we pay them through. Most, most people write on Medium. We don't, right. don't opt in to get paid. They're looking to find audience. We also have a very growing editorial team that is publishing. The latest thing we've been doing is, is starting these little publications or right. mini magazines around a variety of topics. We've been doing that both in-house and through partners like Mark Bittman mm -hmm. and Roxanne Gay. We just right. launched something with a couple weeks ago. And so all of that is working. And it's really the combination of things that are working because it's very clear to me that advertising isn't working, pure advertising right. for publishing, for quality information. People still want good things to read and, and to inform their view of the world. And so every publisher that, as, as you know, is putting up paywalls and subscriptions, and it seems very clear that people aren't going to subscribe to dozens That's of right. sites. Just like they don't subscribe to every TV show they watch or every musician, mm -hmm. they're going to look for a, a, a lot of value under one subscription that's personalized, that's high quality, that's, I think, ad-free is tremendously... Um, well, they're doing that in different. podcasts. They're trying to bring together podcasts. They members. are. I mean, we're much farther along than anyone doing that in podcasts. Do you consider yourself a network then? And how would you describe yourself as a media company? We're, we're, you could call it a network, and Medium's always been a network. It's really a, a, a platform, and the subscription part is a bundle. It's a bundle right. of thousands of writers, of dozens right. of publications uh, for one price. Some of that is licensed, by the way, from third-party publishers. So we, have, we include... New York Times, Financial Times, Bloomberg, right. a lot of these, part of just a few stories from them are in there. And so really, it's, what, our goal is to build the best uh, content subscription product that it, there is. Do you, are you, do you think yourself of buying big media companies, all the others, a lot of Lorraine Powell Jobs, um, Mark Benioff, obviously Jeff Bezos, yep. and others with some money have been purchasing things. There was a rumor you were looking at New York Magazine. Um, is that true? It's true. There was a rumor about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, oh, I love down. New York Magazine. I think they do a great job. And look, I think it is something I've thought about because right. I think there's a lot of those organizations that do great work and they need a new model, frankly. And a lot of them are I think will we'll be fine, but there, a lot of them are, are going through more difficult times. The difference between myself and most of the people you mentioned is um, if we were to do that, it would plug into the business I'm building. So what do you imagine, um, finishing up, what the, the modern media company looks like? What's been the thing that you've done and you've thought, ah, that's not the way it should go? What do you think a modern media company looks like? Because you could yeah. go and buy old media companies yeah. and try to... Yeah, I don't going. think that's, I think a modern media company, if we, we think, um, I think the idea of being open to some degree 
is important. And this is where we're really trying to capture the best of what you get from the internet and from being from social media in many ways, which is giving a lot of people the chance to be heard, but it's not guaranteed. It's not, it's not just let the machines and, and algorithms and people fight it out for attention. It's really blending openness. So not Twitter, right? No. Not, not Twitter, and, but it's, it's, um, we just serve a very different purpose. So the modern media company, if you're, if you're building a publisher today, given the internet, I think it'd be crazy to limit yourself to the people in the building or the people who you, sure. who you know. And so we have the good fortune of getting tens of thousands of people every single day saying, here's my story, here's my idea, here's my perspective, and we curate that. And, and sometimes we, we edit it and we put it in front of more people. And then we also get the benefit of working with people who are well-established. And so a modern media company, I think, taps the world's brains and, and really builds the best. And a big part of what we do in our philosophy is blending humans and, and machines. So we've seen, we've seen the pure open platform, what that gives us in terms of content. And we've seen that the, the traditional world and how that can be limited in terms of scale and efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the next version is going to blend those things. That's what we're trying to do. And are you positive about media? Because it's still in its long death swoon, which still, they still haven't killed off media. And it's been more popular. Reading is more popular. Television is more popular. Yeah. Do you, do you, are you worried about media? About media? In general. Do you think the changes that are being made are... I'm very optimistic. I think... I think it's interesting that the written word and publishing, which we're currently focused on, though not limited to, is kind of the last to be, you know, there's, there's a time when it was going to be the death of the music industry, and there's a time, it was never, as I recall, the death of the TV industry, but there's a time when, the, the, when reality TV dominated, and um, that's what we kind of thought the future was. And both those are tremendously better, both as, as, as businesses and as consumer products. And I think the same thing, for the same reason, can happen with the information we read and nonfiction educational content as well. So you imagine that there will be great media brands not... Like, you know, you have Game of Thrones, for example, which just finished, um, which we're not sure we're going to do after that. Um, right. But do you still are positive that media can morph into this in this noisy, angry... Absolutely. Partisan. The reason it sucks is because of advertising. Full stop. Right. That is the game that we've been playing for 20 years, and it wasn't so bad at first, and now attention wins, period. The cheapest way you can generate attention, which is the same reason that reality TV dominated. Change the business model, you change the content. To me, people talk about saving publishing or saving news. How about we create something way better? And I think we can do that in the same way other industries do, by changing the incentive structure. So that would make kind of Twitter and Facebook reality television in a weird way, because that's where a lot of people The get reality TV version of the internet will exist in, you know, for a long time, just the reality TV version. I think Facebook and Twitter are distribution systems for content more than they are content themselves, and social media is a whole nother thing, but I'm talking about publishing and, and even, even when, when people are talking about where they get their news and information, if most things people read are on other sites that are commercially published and driven by advertising. All right, last question. Do you think you'll go public with Medium? Uh, it's too soon to say, but if we do, I would like to go on the long-term stock exchange, another obvious investment. All right, All right. we'll talk about that later. Thank you, All Evan. Right. Thanks, Kara. 
Thanks again to Alex and Ev for joining me on stage. And thanks to you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you liked this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Donald Donovan, Zara McGrath, Hugh Gallagher, Eamon DeFreitas, and Clarissa Shirosi. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rico Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. 